holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for the health that we see exhibited in the body of Christ and those members who decide to be used by God. People who decide to become involved in some capacity to touch the lives of other people. I thank you tonight, Lord, for this last year's School of Ministry students and how you've invested so much in them in this present student body of this year's school and the pastoral school students that are coming up. We just thank you for the good work that you have begun and are continuing to perform in each life represented. Lord, I pray that we would be those tonight gathered here who would capture the vision of God for this world. I pray, Father, that our eyes would not always be upon ourselves, but we'd see the harvest in our own backyard as well as throughout the world. That we would pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into it. And then as we pray for those laborers, that we would say, hey, send me, Lord. I want to be one of them. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a guy who saved up a lot of money to fulfill his lifelong dream, and that was to go on a cruise. He thought there's nothing like a cruise to be on that ship out in the ocean, go from port to port, out into the tropics, would be awesome. And so he saved up money for years, went to his travel agent, purchased the ticket, had just enough money, bought the ticket, finally went on the cruise, and he was so jazzed. He got the right clothes, and he just felt so awesome. But having a fixed income, he could only save up enough money to buy a ticket for the cruise, period. He didn't have enough money to buy the expensive food that came along with the cruise or the entertainment. And so in lieu of that, he brought peanut butter and bread and a knife and some jelly, and he just made peanut butter sandwiches for his meals. So he'd get up in the morning, have a peanut butter bread, feel very satisfied, go out the first day, enjoy the sun. The ship would go along its course. But by about the second day, as he saw the lobster thermidor walk by and the shrimp and all of those goodies that people enjoy on cruises, he just thought, something's wrong. I want that food. It's just so hard to be satisfied on this cruise with peanut butter and jelly. I want what they have. So as... The day wore on, he was getting desperate. Finally, by the third day, he grabbed one of the porters and he said, Look, I will do anything you want me to do to get some of that food. 
I brought peanut butter and jelly. I could afford just enough to buy the ticket but not the food. I'll wash dishes. I'll scrub the deck. Please, just let me have some of that excellent food. I'll do anything. The porter smiled and he said, Don't you know that whenever you buy a ticket for this cruise, it includes all you can eat? See, this guy bought a ticket and didn't know what was his already. He didn't have to spend any more money for it. It was already his. It was at his disposal. They were resources destined for him to enjoy. A story that goes along the same lines is a true story about William Randolph Hearst, one of America's greatest millionaires. While he was building Hearst Castle in central California, and he was looking through fine art catalogs, he discovered a rare painting that after looking at it, he decided, I have to have that painting. So he got his men together and he said, search wherever this painting's at, whatever museum it's at, whatever collection it's in, offer them the highest price. I want that painting. And they searched the world over. Months later, they came back to him and, and sort of red-faced, they said, Mr. Hurst, we have located that fine, rare painting. He said, great, where is it? They said, in your basement. You've had it for about 20 years and you didn't even know about it. There are an awful lot of God's people who have so much spiritual treasure, so many spiritual gifts, so many resources, and they don't even know it. But they're always crying out, Give me more, Lord! Give me more! And God would answer back, Use what you've got. You've got it. Just use it. In chapter 12 of Romans... It speaks about being used by God. How to be used by God. Because God gifts every Christian to do His work. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every one, every Christian, for the profit of all. And one day, you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, the reward seat. And God will hold us accountable for using or not using the spiritual gifts and resources that were at our disposal. Jesus said, to whom much has been given, much is required. Has God given us a lot? Would you say that the United States is uniquely blessed with its churches, its bookstores, its radio and television ministries? I mean, we've got resources like no one else has. We've been given much. And to whom much has been given, much is required. God offers salvation to the lost through the gospel. And he also offers rewards for Christian service. And as we live this life with the resources God gave us, we ought to keep in mind that one day this life's over and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the showdown. And we'll either we'll get a great reward, Paul said, because we built on the right foundation using the right kind of building material spiritually, or we'll be saved as though by fire, because we built on a foundation with wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, we'll get into heaven, but it'll just be like whoo, singed a little bit. Boy, I'm glad I made it. Now, you're saved by God's grace. That's clear. It's not by works. But you will be rewarded, or you will lack a reward, because of your works, your position in the kingdom is determined by your activity upon the earth, 
Not your salvation. That's a free gift by believing in Christ. But your position in the kingdom, your rewards come as rewards for service. God wants us to be instruments, to be vessels. One thing God does not want Christians to do is to take all the gifts for themselves and go, look at all my gifts, it's Christmas, and they're for me. Now he wants the gifts that we have to better other people. Jesus said on the Feast of Tabernacles, he stood up, he said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. We usually quote that to unbelievers or people that are lacking satisfaction, saying, look, just come to Christ and drink and you'll be satisfied. And we're trying to convince them they have a thirst and they need it satiated. But let's quote the rest of it. Don't stop short on that one. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. In other words, God will satisfy your thirst, but then use you to be a conduit to satisfy the thirst of others with the same goodness, the living water that comes from Him. But God wants us to be a conduit. He wants to work in us, and then God wants to work through us. How do we do it? By using His resources. Paul wrote to young Timothy, and he said, Do not neglect the gift that is in you. You've got gifts. God has enabled you with resources. Don't neglect it. Some of us have gifts that are lying dormant. A, because we're not biblically attuned enough to know how to use them. We have to grow into them. That's all right. Or simply because we've just stopped doing it. We haven't become involved. We've neglected the gift that is in us. As often kids do when they get new toys. You give a kid a toy... Or you give a kid a few toys, and he'll usually pick a toy, and it's, it's his favorite toy. He'll play with it and play with it, and it's all he wants to have. When he goes out, when he sleeps at night, he wants a little toy with him. And he'll play with that new toy to the exclusion of all the rest, but after a week you wonder, where is that toy we just got him? And it could be that it's lying dormant now because a new toy has come along or something else caught his affections or attention. Spiritual gifts can be that way. He gives a list of gifts. He says many of us as members of the body do have gifts according to the grace. Verse 6. According to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry, that is being a servant, that is a spiritual gift in and of itself. Let us use it in our ministering, and he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You must discover your gifts. That's the bottom line. That's the central message tonight. How to be used by God. Find your gift, discover what it is, and then use your gift. Don't neglect it. And really, the ball is in our courts because God has given you gifts. Some of you are using them. Some of you know exactly what they are. But many of you do not. Now, why did God give gifts to the body of Christ? First of all, let me tell you what a spiritual gift is. It's a spiritual enablement. It's not a talent. It's not, you know, some people are naturally talented and we call them gifted at certain things. Like you give the guy a golf club, and a golf ball, and he just can hit that thing a mile, 300 yards. Wow! He's gifted. He's got a talent to hit 300 yards. That's not a spiritual gift. 
you might have guys, a real knack and a talent at mechanical things. You take apart a car, you're not intimidated by it, you know where all the parts go. I'm great at taking things apart. It's just putting them together that I have a real problem with. It's the only difficulty about that equation. But some of you are gifted to work on things mechanically. That is not a spiritual gift. It's a talent. A spiritual gift is an enablement from God, not given to you by birth or naturally, an enablement by God to perform a spiritual work. A spiritual work. And there's a list of them in the New Testament. Why are they given? So that all of us can be bettered and built up. I need your gift. I need you to use your gift in the capacity God has called you to use it. When you don't use your gift, my life is lessened and weakened. When we all use all of our gifts together, we are built up and we become strong. And churches that become strong are churches where many people decide to become involved using their gifts. Paul the Apostle wrote, God has given these things for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, or literally to build up, the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's the beauty. There's incredible variety in the gifts that God gives. No two of us are alike. And we should never try to be alike. We should let God uniquely work through us with the gift that He's given. There's nothing more boring than getting the same gift every Christmas. What if on Christmas Day, every single person that gave you a gift gave you the same one? There it is. T-shirts and underwear. 20 different kinds. 20, I mean, it's like, please. Show me some variety. And God has given the body of Christ a variety of people, a variety of gifts. And that's awesome. Some of us have this little mold in our minds. We take a person, get a person saved, and then try to conform him to this little stamp, this little image that we have, instead of saying, God, just uniquely mold that person. Let that person express you in the unique gift and personality that you have given that person. I've had you turn to this chapter because it is sort of like the graduation chapter. And I'm speaking in terms of Romans. It's the graduation chapter of the truths of Romans. Everything that Paul has set up to this point, he brings it to a kind of a head, and he says, therefore, that therefore encompasses 11 chapters. In view of all of God's mercies that I've written about, justification by faith, Salvation is a free gift. The ongoing work of sanctification, the promise of glorification, God's work through the Jew and the Gentile, all that I've written about so far. In view of all that God has done, therefore, by the mercies of God, I beg you. That's what beseech means. I beg you. Present your body as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. I'm going to quickly, before we show you a video, give you five steps that you must take to be used by God. If you want to be used by God, there's nothing more thrilling than being an instrument. These are five necessary steps. First of all is found in verse 1, consecration. I beg you by God's mercies that you consecrate or present your body to God as a living sacrifice. 
off the bat, that reminds us of the Old Testament ritual of the priest. Did you know that when the priest was ready to serve God, God called the family of Aaron to the tabernacle? He said, all right, I want you guys to serve me. But first, I want you to sacrifice an animal and take the blood of the animal, put it upon the priest's right thumb, right ear, and right big toe. That's the ritual you perform as an act of consecration. A symbolic act that says basically, I hear no orders but that of my God. My hands work no work except that of my king. My feet are swift to run in the ways of God. I consecrate all of my life to him. Using this kind of an analogy and also the Levitical offerings that were given and presented to God and completely burned totally. Let us present ourselves to God not as dead sacrifices, but as living sacrifices. Sacrifice now. Live your life in a sacrificial way, committing your life to the Lord or to be at His disposal. That's a prerequisite for guidance. You say, God, here I am. Here's my life. You've got a warm human body to use. I'm part of the body of Christ. You want me as a toe? You want me as a mouthpiece? You want me as an unseen uh, agent that just is the lifeblood like the heart or one of the vessels, the veins to convey the blood, to convey the life? Whatever. I'm at your disposal. And so the first step is, God, here I am. Take me, I'm yours. Use me. By the way, the word means once for all present. Do it and don't take it back. Don't say, God, here's my body, use me. Well, wait, 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 wait. Before I say that, God, what do you have in mind? Because you might call me to some weird out-of-the-way place or to do some horrible job I don't want to do. So why don't you tell me first what you want me to do? We'll strike a bargain. If I like it, I'll consecrate. If I don't, I'll hesitate. Now, it's once and for all a definite act, a consuming sacrifice. So first of all, consecration. Secondly, transformation. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, or let God change you. Let me read that to you in the Phillips translation. It's the best translation of that verse I found. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remake you, so that your whole attitude, so that your whole attitude of mind is changed. That's it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Allow God to totally change your attitude, renew your thinking. And the word renew means a total radical change. So you come to God, here's my body. Secondly, God transforms you as you subject yourselves to God's word. As you get involved in the body of Christ, you begin thinking differently. Everybody needs this time to change. In fact, let me put it another way. We all need bench time. Dugout time. I think God wants to use us all, but there is a preparation. There is a preparation. Before you get out in the game, listen to the coach. Spend time with him. Let him change your thinking so that you don't go out there just hitting at things. Hitting at mitts and balls and people. Make sure that you're on target. Let your thinking be changed. Don't be afraid to wait upon the Lord. A.W. Tozer wrote, Aimless activity is beneath the worth and dignity of a human being. Activity that does not result in progress toward a goal is wasted activity. Yet most Christians have no clear end toward which they are striving. The great weight of exhortation these days is in the direction of zeal and activity. 
Let's get going is the favorite watchword for gospel workers with the result that everybody feels ashamed to sit down and think. You present your body. There comes a transformation process as he prepares you. Third step, evaluation. Consecration, transformation, evaluation. Verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. In other words, don't think that you're the most important thing on God's green earth. Evaluate your gifts, your strong points, and your weaknesses. And become involved and avail yourself to God based upon what you know your strengths and your weaknesses are. Make an appraisal of yourself. Don't think that you're some awesome thing that God can't get along without. But as you consecrate yourself to God, you evaluate where your strengths and your weaknesses lie. It's as simple as this. What do I enjoy doing in the body of Christ? What brings me satisfaction? When I try something, when I become involved in the lives of people in this church, in this kinship group, what feels right? Where do I excel? Where do people get the most blessed? See, God is not some ogre who says, okay, now that I got you, now that I talked you into following me, I'm going to twist your arm so hard and heavy, and I'm going to make you do stuff that you're absolutely going to hate the rest of your life. Not at all. There's a great book called Knowing God's Will by Blaine Smith. And in it he says, God exercises his providence in creating my particular personality to develop. Let me try that again. God exercises his providence in creating our personalities, period. I may trust that he has not allowed my particular personality to develop by accident, but has fashioned my inclinations and preferences as a means of motivating me in a certain direction. By looking to the desires that are most basic to my personality, I can gain vital insights into where God is leading me. When you operate by God's calling, it's going to be natural. It's not going to be forced. It's going to be natural. You're going to want to do it. You're going to love to do it. You're going to love that kind of an involvement. You'll be constrained by the love of God to do it. It will come naturally, and yet there will be a supernatural gift in operation. Step four, information. So you've got consecration, transformation, evaluation, and the fourth step is information. You need to know what the gifts are and how they work. And in verses 5 through 8 is a list of gifts that are operating in the body. It's not a list of all the gifts, but as Christians, we ought to know what are spiritual gifts and enablements, what ministries are in the body, how they work. We need the instruction, the information, so that when we find out from the Bible how they work, we're more apt to function biblically in that role. Instead of saying, I sort of feel like it's done this way. We can say, no, as I look in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and in the epistles, this gift and this ministry operates this way. There's a pattern to follow. And though there is variety and there's freedom for God to do what he wants, there is a biblical pattern. And finally, step number five, utilization. Once you discovered it, you've consecrated yourself to God, God has changed your thinking, you evaluate your strengths and weaknesses, you get all the information from the Bible, what do you do with it? 
You just stuff it in your head and go, I know so much about spiritual gifts. You use it. There is a time to wait. There's a time to pray. And there's a time to get moving. And there are many of us in that camp. We've studied. We've learned. We've prayed to God. Now it's time to start moving. How did you learn to ride a bicycle? Did you buy a book on how to ride a bicycle? And underline it all the heavy little passages in yellow and memorize them? Oh, there's a great thing, man. All about spokes. Ooh, wow. Gears, yeah, gears. Got to get gears down. They're a little tougher. You did it. You got on it and you tried it. And look at verse 6. It gives us that injunction. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let's use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's use the faith that God has given us to exercise the gifts that God has given us. Years ago, there was a young kid. I say young kid. He was a teenager. Pardon me. He was in Chicago, Illinois, and he wanted to be used by God, but he had no idea what to do. He had no idea what to do. So we went to a local church in downtown Chicago named North Wells Church, went to the Sunday school director, and he said, I want to be used by God. What do I do? Sunday school director said, I suggest that you go out in the streets and you just talk to people who are out in the streets and invite them to church. Invite boys to come to Sunday school. His name, guess what it was? Yeah, Dwight L. Moody. Dwight Moody decided to do that, and from that movement, he realized that his gift was evangelism, and he led all those kids to Christ off the street, and eventually that became the start of Moody Bible Church and Moody Bible Institute. Because he said, I'm just going to try something. I'm going to see if God's in it. I'm going to take a little adventure of faith and see what God would do. So, utilization. Let me just say this. There's a lot of people in leadership of this church right now because of that. They've consecrated themselves to God. They've studied the scriptures. They attend all the services. They look for ways to serve, not necessarily to get glory, but to serve where there's gaps in the body of Christ where people need help. And those people are observed by their diligence, their steadfastness. They don't want the glory for themselves, but the glory to God. And it's those kind of active people that we're always looking for. And it's those are the people that occupy the staff positions of this church. So expose yourself to different ministries. Sunday school department needs lots of teachers still, right? We need lots of people in convalescent homes visiting those people or in the hospital visitation crew. There are gads of ways. YDDC still needs people to go teach Bible studies to these kids once a week, to disciple them, to love them, to instruct them. All sorts of ways to get involved. So, sum it up. An honest appraisal is made of ourselves. We consecrate ourselves to God, and in humility, we let God use us. There was a guy who did just that. This pattern is followed so often in the Scripture. The example that sticks out to me is Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 6, he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and sitting on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Now, when King Uzziah died, the nation was worried. Because just north of Jerusalem were the Assyrians, who had already taken the northern kingdom of Israel captive, and they looked like they were going to sweep down on Judah. Uzziah had died. He had been king for 52 years. He was a godly president, you might say. He was their only hope. He occupied the throne since he was 16 years old. He expanded the borders of Israel. He brought in a revival of sorts. And when he died, I'm sure the people, including Isaiah, said, Oh no, it's all over. That was our last straw. The good king is out of here. Some ungodly king is going to sit on the throne. There's no hope for our nation. It was in that year that Isaiah saw God on the throne. He didn't see a human leader. He saw God is on the throne. It was a reminder, Isaiah, relax. Don't stop being involved, but I'm still in control, dude. I have not taken a vacation just because a godly king is gone. I can do whatever I want. God is still on the throne. He was dazzled by this vision. And uh, let me just read what he says as he sees this vision. Listen very carefully. So I said, Woe is me. I am undone. Or I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why do you say that? He just had an experience with God that few people, if any, ever have. You know what? Every now and then I hear a person say, you know, this morning I was uh, in the shower and God started talking to me. And by the way they share it, I know God didn't talk to them. Because if God talked to them, they wouldn't be so flippant and prideful about the fact that God showed up. Every time in the Bible when God showed up and talked to a person, they were never lifted up with pride. They were abased and humbled. And yet people so flippantly say, yeah, God appeared to me and put his arm around me and we started, ho, ho. I doubt it. Because you wouldn't be acting like that. He said, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, if other people heard Isaiah say that, they would have been shocked. What do you mean, unclean lips? You're a prophet. When you talk, God talks. You don't have unclean lips. Yeah, but compared to God, I do. I might be a prophet, and I might be God's spokesman to you, but when I'm in the presence of God, I see my own sinfulness. And did you know that every person who had an encounter with God in the Scripture saw their own sinfulness? Listen to a few of them. Moses said, when he met God at the burning bush, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Saul, before he was prideful, said, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans in the tribe of Benjamin? David said, as he sat before the Lord, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family that you brought me this far? And Paul the Apostle said, Unto me, who am the least of all the saints, is this grace given to me. Isaiah was broken as he had a real encounter with God. He's in God's presence. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. A prerequisite of being used is to be broken. As he's broken, he's going to ask God. He's going to consecrate himself to God. Say, God, go ahead, use me in the next few verses. There's always a struggle in this area with with people. This, I find, is where lots of Christians have a hard time in being used by God. 
they say something like, oh, I'm so sinful, I'm so unworthy. Well, we already know that. That's true. But I've got to wait till I reach this certain level of perfection and performance, and then I will be used by God. You know what happens to those people? They're, they end up useless. They don't get used by God because they're always waiting for this little area of perfection that nobody reaches. He said, woe is me, I am undone. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with the coal, which is symbolic of cleansing from sin. He said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. And also I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? You know, that's God's call tonight. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth looking for people to use. God's going, hmm, who can I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. A lot of you have said, here I am, God, but send him. Some other day, ask me again, but not now. Or some of us have said, well, here I am, Lord, I've been waiting for you a long time. Um, you ought to have used me years ago because I'm talented and I'm gifted. I think that Isaiah didn't say it that way. I think he said, uh, well, Lord, I'm here, but, uh, well, there's no one else. I'm the only one that had this vision, so here I am, use me. I don't think he said it in pride, but in great humility because he just said, whoa, is me, I'm ruined. And after he was cleansed, he realized the possibility of usefulness. But in humility, he said, God, use me. It's a striking truth. God wants to use you. Doesn't have to. But he's chosen to limit his work through the church. That's awesome, folks. God could have said, forget these people. They're so unreliable. I'll use angels. If I have an angel appear to Albuquerque and Santa Fe in blazing glory and say, repent, there'll be a whole lot of results. But God doesn't do that. Though he could, he has chosen to use human instruments. Because in using weak instruments like us, he gets all the glory. We don't. There's a great song written years ago. Here's an excerpt from it. If I were a planet, or better yet a star, I would try to show the universe who you are. I would take my place among some constellation. I'd be visible from every observation. I'd be assigned among the heavens to each nation and overwhelm the wise men with the wonder of creation. If I were the blue sky, my winds would blow for you. I would storm upon the night to show your power. I would rage upon the earth with heavy showers, hurricane upon all men to make them cower, make them watch me till that unexpected hour when you come again from heaven's lofty tower. If I were a singer, I'd sing my song for you, and my pen would point out all the truth you're made of. And the only thing that I could sing would be love. I would sing it till the faithless ones received it, until the children of your wayward church believed it. I would sing it to the governments and leaders, of all, to all the writers who have misled all the readers. I would sing it though they jailed me and they killed me. Let them empty me of life, for Lord, you have filled me. The song has several other verses, and the idea is that 
no matter what I am, I want to sing and testify and be used for you. Whether I was the sky, whether I was a singer, or whatever, I just want to be used for you. All of that is sort of a preface. It's an injunction to the church to be used by God, but also to let you know that there are many people in this church who are already doing all that. So many. This body is built upon lay power. People involved in a variety of ministries that allows us to meet like this. And I am so thankful to God for each and every one of you. But also, in the last couple of years, we have had a school of ministry that has enabled people from Albuquerque, from this church, and from other parts of the country to get together and to, for a whole year say, God, here I am. I don't know why I'm here. In fact, we were giving orientation this Monday to our new student body, and we said, how come you're here? And a good majority of them said, I don't know, but I believe God wants me here. And I'm consecrating my life to Him. I want all the information. I give God my consecration. I'm going to make evaluation, and I'm going to go for it, whatever God has for me. The students this last year have gone through a year serving the Lord, studying about God, looking for ways to serve the body of Christ and to glorify God around the world. After completing a year of studies, they've gone overseas to six different countries and touched the lives of people in six separate nations through evangelism on the street, skits, mime, music, personal evangelism, speaking in churches and the like. It's been exciting to see what